Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Uh, Let's pray one more time. Lord Jesus, we are appreciative of your word. We're appreciative for your gift of the church. But here this Sunday, um, we want to understand, in contrast to simply affirming or saying, how grateful we are for Jesus. So we pray that in a way that cannot be done by human words, um, that you strike our hearts with gratitude so that we might be changed by the beauty of who you are and what you've promised to do in the lives of your church. We pray this in your name. Amen. So today we are closing out our Advent series, and we are not only going to touch on kind of the continued significance of the birth of Jesus, but in a week where we're pausing and considering the new year that is imminent and coming in our own lives, uh, we're also going to take advantage of that. And as we've discussed before at this point, um, Advent uh, is just the Latin word for coming. And so the Advent season might seem like a distinctly, that Advent is a distinctly theological word uh, when we talk about the Advent season, but it's actually a word that you've probably heard lots of times and in lots of places when it comes to the changing of like an epoch of time or the discovery of a new invention or technology. For instance, I was reading in a book, which I'm just realizing right now how boring this makes this book sound, but I promise it was better than this, uh, which was talking about how the world has changed since the advent of glass, just the material glass. The book gets better than this, I promise. Um, but they talk about how the original, how original kind of naturally formed shards of glass were found in the desert by Egyptians. And they took that naturally formed glass and they uh, put it in jewelry and ornaments, both because it was beautiful, but also because it was novel. It was something they hadn't seen before. So it had value. And then as humanity advanced a little bit more in the 13th century, uh, there are some Italian artisans who figured out not only how to use glass, but how to create it in superheated furnaces. And they were able to manipulate it for both artistic and domestic purposes. And later on, the the printing press popularized a new form of media. That's the printed media. But uh, if you've ever squinted at books today, imagine squinting at the first typeset of the first printing press. People struggled to see it. And so a new principle of glass was utilized, and that was its magnifying principle. It was glass that allowed the invention of eyeglasses to meet the need of a culture that was reading more and more material. As time went on, glass, which was typically known for its fragility, was actually discovered to have immense strength if you could extract individual fibers and layer them on top of each other. And since then, our boats, our cars, our construction projects, and our consumer goods have all been shaped by the incredible durability of fiberglass. Even more relevant today is the principle where they're able to pull the finest threads of glass so that they are flexible, but so pure that they're able to transmit data at light speeds through an increasing global network of fiber optics. And now it's being sent to your computers and your cell phones, which have microchips made of the same material that was found one day in a desert thousands and thousands of years ago. You see, since the advent of 
a unique rock in the desert, the world has been transformed with new and wonderful capabilities. But what has changed since the advent of Christ? What new capabilities are ours if we found something as unique as Jesus? When we think of not just Christmas as a season, but the events surrounding Christmas, the gospel of Jesus Christ, do we actually think that that news, that this discovery is able to shape our lives on a daily and transformative way where we have this seedbed for divine ingenuity in life? Or is the advent of Jesus some therapeutic nostalgia that at best reminds us of the significance of family and warm feelings on the holidays, but at worst makes us frustrated, anxious, or reminds us of the brokenness or incompleteness of life. You see, who could have imagined that the discovery of a cloudy rock in the desert thousands of years ago would actually be shaping the digital age of tomorrow? And if that's possible, imagine the discovery of finding the king of kings born in a manger, the one who has come to solve the sins of the world, or as Matthew 1 says, to uh, This is Jesus who has come to save his people from their sins. How much more should the landscape of our future be changed by the gospel? And in a season where we're looking forward to new changes, we're going to spend some time today, as Johnny just read, uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians. You could open there if you haven't already. And in this introduction to his letter, um, he's going to share with us three ways in which the grace of Christ changes us. Three ways in which the advent, the discovery of the gospel in our life provides things in enduring ways. And what's unique is none of these ways are dependent upon your strength, though it does require effort. But all of these enduring changes are actually rooted in what we'll see in verse 9, which is the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see today are these three ways, and this this is the roadmap for our morning today. First, we're going to see that grace enriches us in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Then we're going to see that grace equips us to wait for the hope of Jesus. And then lastly, we're going to see that grace faithfully calls us into fellowship with Jesus. And so because we're in a shorter passage today, I'm going to read the full thing for us again, and then we're going to circle back for our first point. So this is 1 Corinthians 1, verses 4 through 9. I give thanks to my God always for you. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So important to our context, here we are in chapter one of the book of 1 Corinthians, is, is, 1 Corinthians is understanding the nature of this book. This is a letter written to the church in Corinth, and what you'll find out if you haven't yet read the book of 1 Corinthians is that this church is a mess. There's lots of sin issues in it. And yet, Paul, who knows this, opens up this book to what is probably the most dysfunctional church we see in the New Testament with gratitude. But what is he grateful for? If you notice, he's actually grateful for what God has done, for what God has given in this text. Grateful specifically for the grace that God has given this church 
in Jesus Christ. To a church full of issues, to a body full of broken people, Paul's optimistic for the future of this church because of what they've been given in the gospel. Hope for sinners starts with the grace in Jesus Christ. And Paul's going to begin to unfold this, but what he wants them to know is not just grace in vague language or grace in name only. He wants us to understand very clearly where grace changes us now and how it changes us in the future. And in verses 4 and 6, we see our first point today, which is that grace enriches us in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Look at the language he uses. I give thanks to my God always for you, Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So have you ever been eating cereal and you've been staring at the cereal box and you realize that there in kind of fine print on the front of it, it says that this cereal has been fortified with iron and calcium and vitamin B. Or maybe you've been reading your loaf of bread. I don't know what, all of my illustrations are really boring. Books on, bre- books on glass and reading the ingredients of your loaf of bread. Mornings are the best in my house. And uh, you read it and you realize its first ingredient is enriched flour. And you see there are some foods that when we eat it, it's limited in terms of its nutritional benefit in and of itself. Lucky Charms are called magically delicious, not magically nutritious. And so what they do is they take these foods, which on their own provide little nutritional value, and they magically infuse them with things that are actually helpful for us. Enriched flour exists because many of the simplest ways that we process wheat gets rid of all of the fats and the proteins and the vitamins that are naturally in the kernel of wheat. And so it comes into what was once full and has been made lacking, and it fortifies it, it enhances it, it gives it value and nutrients. And here we see the comprehensive language that Paul is speaking of when he says this, did you catch the repetition? Where he says, you have been enriched in every way, in all speech and in all knowledge, you have been enriched in Jesus Christ. Which means whatever Paul is about to give us in Christ Jesus is not just uh, shortly sweet junk food. It is actually the nutrients in the meat of life itself. It is something that brings enrichment to those who did not have it. If sin and the world are consistent at doing one thing, doesn't 2020 remind us this full well, it is of what we lack in and of ourselves, of where we're broken of where we don't match up, or perhaps of what you don't have, but others do. We are reminded, in fact, we are marketed to, at every level, for what we lack. But here, the grace of God enriches us. It takes the poor and fills them. It takes the weak and fortifies them. It takes the humble, or it takes the the arrogant and humbles them. It takes the broken and solidifies them comprehensively in every place, Paul says. They've been enriched. God enriches us by his grace. Now, few of us would doubt that. There's probably not anyone who came in here, whether you're Christian or not Christian, who expected me to say that God robs you. We know and understand just from this cultural ethos of Christianity that God uh, is for us, God is love, God is mercy, God does generous, godly things. 
But do you actually understand where God has come to enrich you in such a profound and comprehensive way? If you had to point to the place or identify the way in which God has strengthened you with his grace, could you do it? Or to say it in another way, do you know where God has loved you? And do you have certainty of it? Think of it this way. If I were to tell you that Sarah, my wife, loves me, it would be reasonable if you were to say, that's awesome, which I don't know why this would come up in a conversation. My illustrations, are, they'll get better, hopefully, over the course of the sermon. But if you say, well, how do you know Sarah loves you? I imagine I should be able to point to something. Because the truth is, I've had female friends in life, but only one of whom, I'm certain, loves me. And that's Sarah. But what separates Sarah from these other women? I could certainly point to superficial ways in which she makes me feel loved, but ultimately there's one place where I know I can always look to be reminded that Sarah loves me and it sits on my finger. It's that Sarah has married me. She has covenanted herself to me and says that she will be my wife and I will be her husband until death do us part. And when it comes to understanding where God enriches you by his grace, you can certainly point to things which are generally true. That maybe God has blessed you with good health or brought you into a good church community or you have a healthy family and all of these things. James says every good and perfect gift is from God the Father above. But where does God ultimately show his love for you? Where is the grace that is for you in 1 Corinthians 1 in Christ Jesus? It is in himself covenanting to you in Jesus Christ. It is in the testimony of Christ confirmed in the hearts of the believers that you say, this is how God loves me in the gospel. Look again at verses five and six. That in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. How were these Corinthian believers enriched in every way? Where were they made complete where they had lack? by the testimony of Jesus Christ being confirmed and believed among them in faith. Even when they believed, they were enriched. The gospel of Jesus is the good news that Jesus does everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. And that testimony of our need reminds us of our brokenness, that we have sinned against a holy God and we sit under his condemnation. And yet it also reminds us of the wonderful news of God's love for broken sinners, that he would condescend to save, to redeem, to ransom at expense of his own son. And this knowledge enriches us in every way. You drive by Taco John's on Reserve Street every day and they offer some sort of trivial fact or question. It does not enrich our lives. Nothing changes from that. But this, what is given to us in the gospel, changes things. For the Christian, the more we hear the gospel in speech, we see the more we understand the gospel in knowledge, the more we are enriched in every way, and therefore the more we are changed. Whatever they are hearing, whatever they are understanding in this church, it is manifesting itself in a richness in every way. The totality of this church ought to be changed because of what they've heard and understood in the gospel of grace. And this is why we want to encourage you to read your Bible this new year. And Christians don't just read the Bible because Christians have never read the Bible. 
You might have read the Bible before. You might have read the Bible many times before. But the reason why we want you to read the Bible is that in reading God's word, we actually encounter God himself. We learn more and more about who he is and who we are, how broken we are and how immense God is, how loving he is, the immense plan he has for your life. And that's why if you've never read the Bible, we put out this plan, we want you to read it with us so as Johnny said, you could have that in conversation. Reading the Bible's hard, it's difficult. There are parts of it that we need each other's help to understand. And that's why not only do we have the plan, but we've got every Wednesday at noon, whether you're at work or whether you're at home, you could join in on a Google Hangout, and we just talk about what we're reading in the Bible together. And I encourage you to take advantage of that. And we do this because the more and more we encounter Jesus in God's word, the more and more we're changed by him. The more and more we see of the gospel, actually the less bored of it we become and the more excited we get. There's this wonderful scene. Uh, I just finished reading Prince Caspian in C.S. Lewis's Narnia series with my kids. And there's this scene in the book where Lucy has been away from Narnia for a long time. And she comes back and she finally sees Aslan for the first time. And she realizes that Aslan is bigger. And she says to him, she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And Aslan says to her, that's because you're older, little one. Isn't that an odd way to put it? If Aslan's bigger, wouldn't we expect Aslan to say, that's because I'm older? But instead he says, it's because you're older. And so Lucy tries to correct him and says, don't you mean that you've gotten older? And he says, no, I haven't. But, you grow, but every year you grow, you will find me to be bigger. You see, it's often said that breakthroughs in technology and discovery make our world smaller and smaller because mystery is reduced and we understand more. But here, the more we understand the gospel, the more we expose ourselves to God's love for us in this grace in Jesus Christ, the bigger our Lord gets. We will never spend a century studying our God and find him to be smaller, but only in divine grace, the more we know, the bigger he gets the more enticed we are in every way as we learn not only about what God has done to save us, but how God's salvation changes us. And before we go on in 1 Corinthians 1, you need to understand the immense value and immense power which is yours in the gospel of Jesus Christ. These five verses set the foundation for everything Paul is going to try to do with this church in the pages which follow it. And what he's in essence saying here is everything that God is going to demand from you in Christianity he has provided for you in the funding of grace. He has richly given you everything you need to walk in a way that honors God. Which means if we fail to understand God's richness to us in the gospel of grace, we'll be shorthanded in everything that follows. We'll try to do it out of our own might or our own pocketbook, and it's woefully insufficient. Just this past month, one NBA superstar signed what's called a Supermax contract. In case it's not evident, Supermax contract is a good thing for you. It means you get lots of money. How much money? Well, every second this player shows up to work on an NBA floor, he makes $200 a second. 200 sounds like a minimal amount. We're talking about contracts. But a second is a lot. And when we hear numbers like that, what do we do? We begin to think, what would I do with that money? 
don't think I haven't calculated how many seconds we need to fully fund our building fund. <laughs> we begin to scheme. If only I had this, I could do this. I could provide for this. I could help in this way. It captivates our imagination to scheme with the idea of seemingly infinite riches. But look at how Paul describes our redemption in Ephesians chapter one, verse seven. In him, that is in Christ Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. God's grace includes riches, but what has he done? Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and all insight. In God's grace in the gospel, he has not stingily supplied for you out of his riches. He has lavished you. He has been immensely generous. And what we ought to do in the same way you would if you got a supermax contract or perhaps even just learned about it is you now see this wealth that is yours in the gospel and you get to scheme what you get to do with it, how you get to spend it, and where it shows up. And this is where Paul goes next in verses four through seven. So I'm gonna read back at verse four to give us a context of what's going on. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here we see that God has enriched us while we wait. He has given us grace in Jesus Christ so that we would not lack any gift as we eagerly await what is the second advent, the second revelation of Jesus Christ, where Jesus came not as an infant child, but will come as a conquering king to do three things, to judge, to save, and to establish his kingdom forever. And this is our second point today, is that grace equips us to wait for the hope of Jesus. Now, we live in a culture, I imagine that this has been historically a human norm, that we don't like to wait. But we live in an instant culture where the idea of waiting is just odious to us. It is so offensive that we would have to wait for anything. And so what we do, if you've ever gone somewhere where you know you're going to encounter a sort of wait, whether that was the election lines in November or the DMV or your favorite restaurant, is you prepare yourself to wait. Maybe you bring a book, you bring something to work on, you download a new podcast or a game to your phone so that you can pass the time. And for the most part, all we're trying to do is entertain ourselves until the wait is over. But here, this provision of enriching grace in Jesus Christ is so powerful and so transformative that it gives you everything you need to wait well for the final hope of glory in Jesus Christ that is to endure till the end. And these gifts that he gives us are not only gifts which entertain us, though following Jesus is the most satisfying life you will ever live, but they're actually gifts which give us the necessary gift of, endura, of enduring us. To not be in Christ, to not have this endurance, is to be on the wrong side of this revelation. But Jesus gives us everything we need to get there. No one prepares as if going to war 
when they're going to wait at the DMV. But what Paul is saying here is that this waiting period between the two advents of Jesus is war for the Christian. It is that serious and it is that hostile. Look at what he says, in, or Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. As we hold fast to grace in Jesus Christ, there are forces in this world which want to pry it from our hands, pry it from our hearts to disrupt our faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not just forces of the flesh, but here we have Satan who desires nothing more than to snatch you out of God's grace in this area. And look at how Jesus explains the parable of the soils in Matthew 13, 18 through 23. And so where there in 1 Peter is talking about the danger of Satan on the outside, here we see external and internal threats to our ability to endure. Verse 18, Jesus says this. He has to explain, he just gave the parable, but he knows we're dumb, and so now he's explaining it again like we're five, um, and we're grateful for it. Here then, the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, that is the gospel of God, or as how Paul is putting it in 1 Corinthians, that's the grace given to us in Jesus Christ, and does not understand it, the evil, evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. And this is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, and indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. And so here we see, in Jesus' own analogy of your hearts, that this world possesses tribulation and trial that seeks to tear away what the word of God sows, this hope and enduring hope in the gospel of Jesus. And I think one threat in here is the threat that we often don't see as a threat, the cares of the world, the pleasures of the flesh, the entertainment of life. You see, it's often been said when the Roman Empire was becoming increasingly hostile towards its citizens, not long after the the apostles were writing the New Testament, that the officials satisfied the people not by changing the big problem of governmental abuse, but by giving them bread and circuses, meaning they gave the people superficial satisfaction which entertained them enough to where they thought their big problem was taken care of. And our world wants us to be distracted in our time of waiting, to give our lives bread and circus, which distracts. Every time you, if you, every time, I, I swear I've only been to a handful of casinos in Vegas. When you go to Vegas and you're in a casino, they intentionally make it hard to find your way out. There are lights and there are mirrors and it's intended to be convoluted so that you might become stuck there. And this world is after your heart in the same way. It wants to captivate your heart and it knows it only needs to fill your hands to do it. 
Wherever we start spending our hands and our efforts and our finances and our Sunday afternoons, there our heart soon follows and distracts us from the bigger problem, which apart from enduring in Jesus Christ, will remain unaddressed. But here, God gives us gifts which keeps our dreams not on the hopes of man, but on the certain revelation of Jesus Christ and his second coming. And this is where we must understand that what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 1 is not that you, as an individual Christian, are equipped with every gift. Now, we might read that and say, well, it's literally what he says, so that you are not lacking in any gift. But remember, Paul isn't writing to a person. He's writing to a church. And in chapter 12 of this very same letter, he says to the church, some of you have these gifts, some of you lack these gifts. Some of you who lack have other gifts that you over here also lack in other gifts. And so when we understand the presence of us not having all the gifts and the lack that we might have individually, that we begin to actually make sense of our lives and we see the practical beauty of God's gift of grace. You see, realizing that none of us are comprehensively equipped with all of God's gifts of grace makes sense of how hard it often seems to follow Jesus, doesn't it? Because if God truly gives us every gift for which we have no lack, then wouldn't we feel a little silly when we struggle and give in to sin? When it seems hard to practice sanctification and holiness and so easy to practice anger or lust or violence. Even though we know sin is always a lie, don't we often choose it? Even though we affirm Jesus is coming back, don't our lives like to show that we, we would like to have a good hedge in place in the event Jesus doesn't come back? We want to get enough joy out of this world so if he doesn't come back, I still feel like I haven't wasted my life. It is so easy to functionally feel what we lack. But look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, the same letter later on, verses 21 through 31. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the part of the body that seems to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you, that is the church in Corinth and us today, are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church, first the apostles, second the prophets, third the teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing and helping and administration and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, do all pro are all prophets, are all teachers, do all do miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? And the answer is a rhetorical, no. Not everyone has all of these. When where we on our own wrestle with the war of waiting, God gives us an army of fellow believers who help us wait well, who make up for our individual lack in the corporate church which God has gifted this body, this 
holiday weekend 2020 body with every gift we need to hold fast and wait well, to keep our eyes on Jesus. The grace given to us in Jesus reminds us we don't wait alone, but we are actually called to use our gifts to help those around us endure. This year in 2021, what does it look like for you to use the gifts of grace that God has given you to help others endure eagerly for the revelation of Jesus Christ? Now, what does this look like? That's a good practical question for us. What does it look like to help other people wait well? My family, just last night, we visited an escape room. Um, and we, it's like one of those big rooms with a giant puzzle. You have to find your way out. And we took my eight-year-old son, Owen, with us. And we had a certain amount of time to solve this puzzle. And as the time gets lower and lower, we started working more and more frantically and, and quickly. We stopped communicating as much. And we made it in the nick of time with five minutes left. We made it out of the room. And we're all celebrating. And we get in the car. And I turn to Owen. I'm like, Owen, how was that? He said, I felt like I couldn't do anything. I felt like I couldn't offer anything to what was going on. And I look back as a dad, and I see times where there's chaos everywhere, and Owen's just standing there or sitting on the ground watching the clock, just telling us updates of what was going on. And as a father, it hurt my heart a little bit to hear that. But here we, don't we see how much greater our Heavenly Father is, where none who are saved by His grace get st- 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 stuck in a corner and told, let the others handle this where whether you have been a Christian for a second or for decades, you have been equipped with the gifts that God has divinely given you that are meant to help others. There are no bystanders in the church if we are saved by this grace because where you might be weak, God's gift has enriched you. Where you might lack, God's body has come to use you. And that doesn't mean we don't have immature gifts that don't need development. It means that sometimes it's hard to figure out how to run and how to, to, to work out our faith. But it means that you right now, if you have faith in the gospel of Jesus, have been given a gift to help others reach the finish line of faith. And that gift in the corporate is good enough for you to get you there. This is why we do church membership of where we say specifically and explicitly to those around you that I am here to help you and you are here to help me because we need it. Because on our own, it is difficult and hard. But together we are a pool of gifts wherein we are honoring God and serving each other. And so what does this look like to get to the answer of my question? Well, consider Peter's challenge to the church in 1 Peter chapter 5. Or 1 Peter 4, excuse me. Where he says this, verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So where do we see some practical steps for us to gauge how we use our gifts of grace to endure others? Paul gave, or Peter gives two really helpful categories there. That is in our speech and in our service. 
How is it with the words that God has given you in sharing the gospel and encouraging and calling one another out of sin that you might serve others? How is it in your physical person with your finances, with your skills, with your body and your time that you might help others follow Jesus? And in so doing, you see the the two for one, right? Not only are you helping others, but to him you are glorifying Jesus Christ. God gives us the grace we need to wait well and to help others get to that finish line as well. And this is important because when we look at what it means to endure, for us to pursue holiness, for us to help others pursue holiness, we can often ask ourselves the question, does any of this matter? Because everything we've talked about, though fueled by grace, is still hard in a graceless world. It is burdensome. But here's our last point today that reminds us that God is faithful to do all of this. That we are not laboring towards something that will be ineffective or inefficient, but instead something certain. This is our last point today, that grace faithfully calls us into fellowship with Jesus Christ. Grace faithfully calls us into fellowship with Jesus Christ. Read with me verses seven through nine of 1 Corinthians one. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here we see the wonderful hope and reality of how grace in Jesus changes things. Jesus himself will sustain you till the end, guiltlessly. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Not only that he will sustain us, but he will sustain us guiltlessly. How many of you have ever bought a product or a service where you're talking to someone who seems to know what is going on, who seems to be a position of power, and as soon as you purchase that product, you get handed down to the intern who's now handling your account? That doesn't exist in Christianity. Jesus doesn't get you in and pawn you off on some angel who's going to help walk you through life. It is Christ himself who walks with you so that by the end you might stand before God guiltlessly. Many of you exchanged gifts over the weekend. And how many of you were presented a far greater gift than you gave to that same individual? Or how many of you thought you had a killer gift and you gave it, and the person was unmoved by it. When you see those things, when you encounter that, what emotions did you have? Did you feel a bit guilty? A bit frustrated? A bit ashamed? On this silly thing of giving gifts at Christmas. But brothers and sisters, when we stand before God Almighty and King Jesus is revealed to us in all of his glory, you will encounter a gift that makes your best work look like dirty socks. And here's the wonderful promise that for those who have the testimony of Jesus Christ, for those who endure by the gifts of grace given to us in Jesus, that reception in heaven will be this wonderful tension of at the same time realizing how futile our efforts efforts were to save us and satisfy God, and yet realizing how wonderfully sufficient and guiltless we stand in Christ who paid for our debt to bring us into God's grace. 
we had a shame of lack that Christ took upon himself. We had a penalty of death that he endured. And because he took that from us, we have only the promise of guiltless acceptance before the Father. A promise that is not rooted only in the overzealous offer of the Son, but actually in the tandem of grace between God the Father and Christ the Son. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Our salvation is the collective effort, not of a God gone rogue, but of the whole triune Godhead working to redeem a broken people. And so when we accept Jesus, when we put our faith and confirm that gospel, we have the promise of a faithful father. Why is he faithful? Because he is the one who calls us into fellowship with his son. In other words, the only reason you will ever stand guiltless before God, the only reason you will ever be sustained until the end, the only reason you will ever be enriched in every way is because God has called you to a relationship with Jesus. Whatever you think of Christianity, have you come this way? Have you come through the gateway of Christ by relationship? Because no other means gets you guiltlessly before God. God will be faithful to judge, but for those who are in Christ, God will be faithful to accept. If you've never done that, I pray that you talk to someone today. Talk to someone who brought you here to a pastor. But God is faithful. And here's the interesting thing about this letter to the church in Corinth. As I mentioned earlier, this church is an absolute disaster. This church has sin abounding in it. This church has every reason to feel guilty. And Paul is going to call this church to repentance and to change. And so how is it that Paul is thanking God for all he's done in this church, which is a wreck? Because Paul knows that if this church believes in the gospel, then this fellowship they have with Jesus, this grace of faith, of gifts, and of endurance will ultimately call them out of sin and make them more like Jesus. You see, did you notice how every level of this passage, despite what we're hearing here, he is calling the church to endure. He is calling the church to use their gifts. He is calling the church to continue to be enriched. And yet it is never apart from the grace that is in Jesus. Do you see how he tacks Christians to the name of Christ? Verse four, the grace given you in Jesus Christ. Verse six, the testimony of Christ confirmed in you. Verse seven, waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse eight, Christ will sustain you until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse nine, God is faithful because he has called them into fellowship with Jesus Christ. Regardless of where you are in your process of coming towards God and being more like Jesus, at every level, Christ is held up for the church because at every level, Christ is your hope before God. To be saved by Jesus is given the hope of being changed because of our relationship to Jesus. Look again at a popular verse in Romans 8. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We know that. But now he defines the purpose. What is the good in all of life? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son 
in order that he, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, that big brother might cause little brother to look like him. What is our hope that God works all things for your good? As you look into 2021, don't we have a list of what can happen for our good? A list of things we'd like to change. But the change that always, guaranteed, 100% works out for your good is that it's whatever is on the outside that God is using it to make it, you more like Christ on the inside. Meaning that by God's grace, our lives will look less like who we were before and more and more like who we've been called in Christ. And this is hard work. Many of us often wonder whether we do it explicitly or implicitly, if verses like this could actually be true, if we can actually become like Jesus. And sure, we see places where God has been immensely gracious and it's been easy to flee from sin and to pursue Christ-likeness, but there are other places where it feels like we've gone as far as we can go, where there is a rut and there is no more grace for you, where we are trapped, we are beheld, we are confined to a pattern of life. And it can cause us to either ignore God's good word or it can cause us to become frustrated with God's grace. But look at Paul's comfort again in Philippians chapter one, where we see this. Verses six and nine through 11. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with, all, or with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. Here's the promise of grace for you in the advent of Jesus Christ is that grace might make change slow. Change will be hard. Change will be costly but because we've been called to saving faith in Jesus Christ, we also have the hope of progressing more and more to be like Jesus until one day, one glorious day, we are made like him in heaven. Since the advent of Jesus, we have a hope that changes us as it calls us more and more into a relationship we have in him. We have hope not only for the potential of change, None of us doubts that grace gives us the potential to change. But the gospel is greater than a potential. The gospel gives us a promise that we will change. That God has given us everything we need in the gospel to be enriched in life, generous in our gifts, enduring and sustained to the end. So as we look into 2021, how does this gift of grace in the gospel change the way we plan? Change our schemes, our speech, our church. You might lack optimism that you could drop the 15 pounds you wanna drop this next year after quarantine binge eating. But we have all the confidence in the world that Jesus will continue this work in you and in us. And so enriched with all of that, let us go forward, glorifying God as we progress more and more into being like Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your gift of grace in the gospel. We pray that it changes us in real ways. 
Lord, we understand those real ways are sometimes a hundredfold and sometimes it is twofold. And yet any grace changes us. And all change which happens by grace should astound us. And so, Lord, we pray that we exercise the gifts of grace you've given us, that we individually might be changed and we corporately might be changed, that we will be a body faithfully and eagerly waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we know this will happen, for God is faithful, who has called us into a relationship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray all this in your name. Amen.